And Lord, we turn our eyes to this wonderful passage of Scripture we're going to look at together now. We pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that you'd help us to see things in it we've never seen before and that you would most of all change our hearts, that we would be able to love you with all that we are in this coming week. Please bless the reading of your word into our hearts now and the preaching of your word to each of us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Great. Well, if you have a Bible, do turn up uh, the book of Daniel. Deb's going to come and read to us chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. Uh, it's an exciting story, and uh, we're going to look at this together this morning. Thanks, Deb. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty, They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, 
We want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and the houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thanks, Deb. We'll do keep uh, that passage open. Um, I'm aware that the summer's kind of quite bitty, people come and go, so here's a little recap of where we've been for those who've been away. Um, Chapter one, we looked at the question, where in the world am I? Or or more directly, um, God, where are you in the kind of brokenness of our world? Where are you? And we saw in chapter one that God was right here with his people. In chapter two, we looked at the statement, there is a God and he is not silent And he is building an everlasting kingdom. And if you were here last week, remember the illustration, I'm born, I live, I die. This is my world. This is what I see. This is my story. And I asked us the question, is that your ultimate reality? Or do we understand that God is telling a much bigger story, which if I understand that, my story fits into his story? Is this all that there is? Or is there something bigger going on? And so I asked us the question, what is our ultimate reality? And a couple of times we've looked at this little illustration in the last two weeks. Do you ever feel, if you're a Christian believer, like a red, cot, a red dot in the corner? Feel quite marginalized, isolated, running against the flow, particularly in an increasingly godless culture. How does it feel to be a Christian? And we've reflected on what it's like to feel like that red dot in a gray world. Well, remember the context of where we are. Daniel is with 
Some of God's people, many of them, and they've been taken out of Jerusalem, God's city, and they've been taken off into a foreign land, into Babylon, modern-day Iraq. There's a foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar, over this people. And in the first and second week, I painted a kind of picture of the tension that perhaps they might have been experiencing. Firstly, they, they get to the city, and there's this great grief and disgust because Babylon is a pagan, godless place, over a thousand different temple, temples to worship in. It's a godless place, and they look at it and they go, that's not home. This isn't the God that we serve. We don't want to be here. But I also painted a picture of perhaps what could begin to happen as they get used to being in Babylon. Remember, Babylon was a very wealthy place. There was lots of opportunity there. Maybe gradually they could start assimilating and becoming like the culture around them. And they go, oh, this is actually all right. This city is pretty amazing. Maybe God has abandoned us, and maybe... Maybe there are other gods. At least that was a temptation I'm sure some of them will have had to think. And so as you come to this chapter, the heat is turned up quite literally on God's people. And the question that they have to address or answer for themselves is who are they going to serve when the pressure and the heat is really applied? And that is a hugely important question for us to address in the culture in which we live, where being a Christian is getting harder and harder. I don't know if you noticed last week in the end of chapter 2, Two or three verses before the end of the chapter. I deliberately didn't pay any attention to it last week. But go back to chapter 2, verse 47. At the end of this chapter where Daniel interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar the king declares this. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. And it leaves us asking a question. Well, was Nebuchadnezzar converted? Well, have a look at how our reading begins, chapter 3, verse 1, because it's a pretty obvious answer. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. just want you to notice three things about this. First of all, notice what is this great image that is made, made of? It's made of gold. And do you remember in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted last week? where Daniel said the head of the image in his dream was made of gold. And he said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. And remember, we sort of played the role of Nebuchadnezzar where he's kind of going, well, I know I am. I'm pretty impressive. Maybe this image was made in gold because Nebuchadnezzar is thinking in his mind, I am this great king of my dream. But at the very least, gold is hugely expensive. So this image that's been set up is of great worth. Notice the second thing. Where is it placed? It's placed on the plain of Jura. This is southeast of Babylon in a very public place. And the idea is that everyone can see it. This statue is nine foot wide and 90 foot tall. That's the height of an eight-story building. It's enormous. And the purpose of it is for everyone to see it. It's meant to dominate the skyline. You come anywhere near Babylon and you see this. And notice the third thing you notice in this little little verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. And, And similarly, eight times in this chapter, you get the little phrase, set up. This king makes, he sets up a god to be worshipped. And that's hugely significant as we travel through the rest of this passage. Just a few obvious things which are worth clarifying for us. First one is this, that you and I were created by God to worship. We were created. We have hearts that were designed to be set on something. Think about what your heart's affections are set on. We all have passions. 
We all love something, and something or someone is always the object of our love. We were created to worship. It's what makes us different from the rest of the animal kingdom. You and I were created to worship. But the Bible uses this word idolatry that speaks of worshipping idols. Idolatry is worshipping something that has been set up or created Now, sometimes we think of worship being, well, I come into church and I sing songs or hymns, and that's worship. But worship's far more than that, as this little cartoon explains. One chap says, hi, is Tim there? Yes, but he's worshipping. Worshipping? Yeah, that's right. And he's very religious about it, too. And there's a little chap watching the TV. Uh, the The point is, worship is anything we set our heart's affections on that becomes more important to us than God. What do we give our time to? What is it that motivates our heart? And to go back to last week, what is it that dictates or determines our ultimate reality? John Calvin, the famous reformer, talked about idolatry in this way. He talked about our human heart being like an idol factory. That we manufacture stuff to worship and put first in our life. And we all do it all of the time. Um, Tim Keller, an American pastor and author, uh, and we've probably heard this before, spoke of idolatry being making a good thing an ultimate thing. And they're both helpful illustrations. I I find the most helpful way to think of idolatry is to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about the great exchange. And here's the illustration which we've seen many times before. God created you and me to enjoy good things. But when good things become God, good things rule over us, and God just becomes a good thing. Let me say that again. God created you and me to enjoy good things. But when good things become God, they rule over us, and God just becomes a good thing. That is idolatry. It's exchanging the glory of God as the only one who's meant to have our heart's affection set on him for something else. And sadly, often that thing is a good thing. It could be family. We can make an idol of our health. We can make an idol of our homes. We can make an idol of happiness. They're all good things, but they can become more important to us than a relationship with God. And the passage talks about it. It's exactly the words that uh, Paul uses in the book of Romans, where he talks about exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator. It's the great exchange. God Mankind, good things. Good things become God, and God just becomes a good thing. We're created to worship, but we weren't created to to worship created things. We were created to worship the Creator. And so, what we see is that great truth that true worship, as the Bible describes, requires us all to have a heart transformation. It's the illustration with the children's talk earlier with the plasticine and the rock. God needs to transform our hearts. Have a look at the passage. Look at this great declaration of idolatry from Nebuchadnezzar in verses 4 to 6. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of all these musical instruments, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. And then you read in verse 7, the great tragedy, and this really is a picture of our world. Therefore, as soon as they heard the language, uh, the, the sound of these instruments, 
all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, we don't have a great statue that's eight stories high in the middle of Long Crendon. But we have plenty of things here or in the communities that we're from that we worship. Plenty of things that, if we're honest with ourselves, become more important to us than God. And what happens in our heart when these things become God to us is this great exchange takes place. And the glory of God just becomes a good thing. And something that's good becomes God. And that's why we need a heart transformation, because if John Calvin is right and my heart is an idol factory, I will keep on manufacturing new things to set my heart's affections on until my heart is captured by a better vision, which is what we were thinking about last week. My story, is this my ultimate reality, or can my heart be captured by something bigger and better, which helps explain my reality, but isn't all that there is? Well, those three kind of statements set the basis or the foundation for the rest of the chapter because we then see this thing. The heat is literally turned up and we have to ask ourselves this question. Who are we serving? Come to verse 12. Uh, Some of the other officials come to King Nebuchadnezzar and they say this. There are some Jews who you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So these are kind of civil servants, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are the three Jews who were given new names along with Daniel in chapter 1. And they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And in that moment, you can imagine their hearts beating. And they have to address this question in their hearts. Are these men who were created in the image of God going to bow down and worship something that was made by mankind? That was the million-dollar question that they had to answer and address. And they knew, and this is the truth, there's only room for one Lord in every one of our hearts. There's only room for one Lord. And who would be their Lord when the heat was literally turned up on them? Now remember, God had called them to prosper in Babylon. He had called them to build homes, to marry, to start businesses, to grow families. He told them to live and work in a godless culture. These people, Daniel and his three friends, had to learn a foreign language. They had to understand and come to appreciate the good things in a foreign culture. They were even serving as civil servants in the service of a foreign king who himself was godless. If you're a Christian, you're not called to live outside of this world and remove yourself from everything in the world. God is calling you to seek, as it says in the book of Jeremiah, the, the peace and the prosperity of the city, to see our culture flourish, to contribute to it. But... There comes a point as a Christian where you say, I will not worship that. Didn't we see it in chapter 1, in verse 8, where Daniel resolved in his heart, and I explained that word resolve literally meant he placed in his heart. Daniel said, I will not eat this food that has been defiled because I want to stay distinctive. And a similar thing happens in this chapter because in chapter 3, they defiantly, these three men say, we will not bow down to your gods. Yes, I live in Babylon. Yes, I'll learn your language. Yes, I'll even serve a foreign king. But I will not bow down and worship an image made of gold. And they make their stand. And we looked at it last week, didn't we, that discipleship can be costly. And it was potentially going to cost these men everything. Come to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I love that. For them, it's like, there's no choice. I don't need to explain myself. I serve one king, and I'm not going to defend my actions. I serve him and him alone. And then he says, verse 17, if we are thrown into this burning furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. I love his humi- their humility. He's able to save. But it may not be his will to save, but he'll ultimately will save us from you, this foreign king. There's great humility. But what you see here is rather like the stubbornness of a two-year-old who sits down at dinner and they eat the meat, they eat the potatoes, and they say, I will not eat the greens. I won't. You know what a two-year-old's like. We've all been one once. I will not eat the vegetables. And we, we, we pull our hair out at two-year-olds because they don't want to eat their greens. But actually, maybe in, in that little moment, they are God's gift to us. Because as you see their stubbornness, I won't eat the peas, it's a tiny little picture of the stubbornness that you and I need when we're faced with serving other gods. We need to be in that moment only, perhaps, like a two-year-old. I will not serve another god. Three amazing... Um, realities are on display here what, what I love look at these men something extraordinary in their attitude for them their life was not their absolute because their story was part of a bigger story the biggest goal in their life was not to preserve their own life because they believed in a God who had the answer to death it's astonishing that they didn't hold on to life with everything they had because something mattered more than that their life was only part of a bigger story Shows an incredible perspective, doesn't it? Notice, too, the utter confidence they've got in the power of God. He is able to deliver us. I'd be a shivering wreck if I was told that if I was going to carry on preaching, I'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. But they had utter confidence in God. You you take the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, all men will hate you because of me. Don't you need to be able to trust in the power of God when you hear those words? Or you think of the words of the Apostle Paul when he speaks to the young man Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy. And he says in chapter 3, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Don't we need to believe in the power of God if we're going to live and stand for Jesus in a culture that may make it harder and harder for us to do that? If God's not powerful, we've got no one on our side to help us. So their life was not their absolute. They really believed in the power of God. And thirdly, what I love in their example, and I think is a a great example to us, is that for them, faith meant a willingness to obey even in uncertainty. It's easy to follow Jesus when life's going well. It's much, much harder when life is difficult, when I can't see the outcome, when I feel confused. But faith is trusting even when I can't see. And you see that perfectly in this example. I just want to park Daniel for a moment and and step into our culture. I want to speak for a moment into an issue that I think will become the battleground. It probably already is the battleground for us as Christians in this culture. Uh, There are probably a number of examples you could give, but here's the one. I want to speak about the issue of sexuality. Uh, Some people will say the church is always banging on about this stuff. Now, I think the church, not just this church, the wider church, have made some mistakes in this area. Sometimes we're constantly heard to be speaking about what we're against rather than affirming what we're for, and the church needs to redress that. 
Sometimes, too, churches can be quite reactionary to issues, and we're always a step or two behind. But I don't think it's fair where people say the church is always banging on about issues of sexuality, because the reality is our culture is banging on about this stuff all the time. And often churches are just responding and trying to be faithful to God. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. You'd have seen this great campaign that's across our TV screens that started in April, Gay Britannia. This actually began with a really positive motive. The purpose of Gay Britannia was to stand up and to celebrate um, the anniversary, the 50-year anniversary of the Sex Offences Act. That's a good thing, to stand against discrimination. That was the motive, ultimately, of Gay Britannia, but it's been hijacked, and we see it all over our country. We see this rainbow on on the tube stations... We see it painted all over the Boris bikes with the famous hashtag, love is love. The idea is, love is just love. Love whatever you love. Love in whatever way you love. It doesn't matter. And don't let anyone tell you any different. And it's a great tragedy. And so actually, this is no longer an issue about what was God's word and what do Christians say about homosexuality. It's much bigger than that. This is now an issue about the abuse and the freedom that our sexual desires have led us to in this country. And it's absolutely shocking. It's putting mankind at the center and saying, love is love. Pursue love wherever you want, with whoever you want, in whatever way you want. You're free, and it won't do you any damage at all. And people jump on this bandwagon, and then they criticize churches when we speak out against this. Perhaps there's one or two here for whom inside you're being a bit rankled, even with some of the things I'm sharing. Let me just show you the trajectory we're heading on, and you will be aware of these things. I heard recently that on the underground they were thinking of removing one of the notices that said, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, because there was a belief that it was a bit too binary, lady, gentleman, and so they needed to change it to good morning, everyone. Now that actually got overturned. You'll know this particularly was a big thing in the States and in Canada, and it's increasingly becoming an issue in this country, the whole gender neutrality, who can use what toilets. You can see where this is going, all in a bid to be inclusive, which is important, but it's terrifying where it's going. What about this? I, uh, I watched a, a program that moved me to tears two weeks ago. It was a program based in America that was looking at this whole issue um, of transgenderism and gender reassignment. I learned, and this, this broke me down, that there are 40 clinics in America at the moment that are performing gender reassignment surgery on children under the age of 10. Does that shock you? So here's how it was depicted in the, in, in the film. Uh, you've got a little boy and a little girl, and they're playing, and they're growing up and learning who they are. And the little boy puts on a dress, and we've all done it. We're just figuring out who we are, having a bit of fun, and you just let them play. But some parents now will actively look at a little boy who puts on a dress and go, they're just a girl in a boy's body. And we've got to actively encourage them to not be a boy. And they're taken for surgery, and children under the age of 10 are injected with estrogen to make them more feminine, And girls are injected with testosterone to make them more male because we're meant to be allowing freedom. And the whole purpose of this this program was, whose choice is it anyway? And the argument from a lot of these very liberal people was, it's the child's choice. And if they put on a dress, affirm it to the point where they even have reassignment surgery. I know that's a very extreme case, but that is terrifying. And I think it's abusive. And that is the world that we're living in. And that's in Canada and America at the moment. And no doubt in our lifetime it will be in this country, I'm sure. One last example. We've had the world championships in athletics. Well, this is an American swimmer, a 21-year-old, the first openly transsexual swimmer. 
born with a female body but has had reassignment surgery and now competes as a man. You can see where this goes in athletics. Women competing as men, men competing as women. And so if we want to talk about this big debate, look at where it leads us when we say to God, I don't care what you think. Love is just love. And no, the church mustn't speak about this. We just must let people do what they want to do. We need to be free. We need to be inclusive. We need to be loving. And you look at the trajectory where this love takes you. It's not loving at all. Now, this is a, I know this is a serious thing, but we need to engage with what's going on in our world before we sort of jump very quickly at saying we mustn't speak about these things. Maybe the Bible's got it wrong because the subtext from the people who are championing these things is let's reinterpret the Bible. But what they're really saying is let's rewrite it because it's not relevant anymore and it's putting people off. But we've got to think seriously about this as a culture because the Bible says obey me, the loving God, because I do know what is best. I did create you. I do love you. But will you listen to me? And we've got to think about this for ourselves. Well, let's come back to our passage. Come to verse 19, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace that is burning seven times hotter than it normally does. And it's so hot that the soldiers, verse 22, are killed as they throw these men into the furnace. But something astonishing happens in verse 25. Look, I see four men walking in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, all sorts of stuff's been written about this. Was that fourth character an angelic figure? Was it a kind of pre-incarnate Jesus Christ? You could argue different things. I think to sort of pin it on one specific thing slightly misses the point. The bigger point is, here is an example of supernatural protection. God was with his people. Three men thrown into the fire, but God met them there. And look at the astonishing way that he protected them. Chapter 3, verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar approaches the opening of the furnace. He shouts to the men, come out. And they come out of the fire. And all the people crowd around, verse 27. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Look back to chapter 3, verse 15, and the taunt of Nebuchadnezzar. What God will rescue you from my hand when I throw you into my great fire, he says. Well, look at the answer. The living God says, me. I am a God who can rescue people from a furnace And they don't even smell of fire, let alone have any burns on them. I am the living God. It's the most defiant rescue where he declares, I am Lord. And the Bible tells us that this was going to happen in a prophetic word from God through the book uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 43. He spoke these words to comfort God's people. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I think this passage is a tremendous encouragement to us about the astonishing power of the living God to save. So to bring it back to home as we pull to a close, You and I will be under increasing pressure in our culture to conform, to fit in, to be like everybody else, and particularly on some of these agendas. It might be the sexuality debate, it could be medical ethics, it could be assisted suicide. 
You name it, the issues are there, and they're only going to get harder. But think about these men. Under pressure, they could have easily just said, well, look, we, we know our hearts. We know there's a living God. Let's just bow down with everyone else, just fit in. Maybe then we'll live another day and we can be faithful. But I love their defiance. They said, here's the line, and it stops here. We will not bow down and worship. Whatever it costs us, we won't. I love that defiance in them. And they stood firm and obeyed the word of God. Does that remind you of anyone else in God's word? Think of the Lord Jesus Christ when he is tempted at the beginning of his ministry in the desert for 40 days by the devil. And one of the temptations the devil gives him, a ridiculous one, is worship me and I'll give you everything you see. And Jesus says no. And he quotes the word of God at him and says, here I make my stand. I will not worship you because you're not Lord. He was the only Lord. I hope we can see that the cost of standing for Christ is greater. If we don't stand for Christ, is greater than the cost that you will face if you do not stand for idolatry. It will cost you. It will cost us as a church. And I don't think yet in this country we're facing the ultimate punishment for being faithful for Christ. But the reality is, you read the news of other parts of the world, there are plenty of Christian brothers and sisters in the world for whom it costs them everything. And we can't even begin to comprehend what that even looks like in this culture. They lose their churches, they lose their homes, they lose their work, they lose family members, they lose everything. But they say, we will not serve a foreign God. And so although we're not there yet, I could give a kind of great rallying speech now saying, you know, when they come and they take our church away, we'll just meet in our homes. And when they take our homes away, we'll meet in tents. And when they take our tents away, well, our skin's waterproof. I'm being a bit flippant, but that's not actually what we need. What we need in our culture is an understanding that these issues are far more subtle. And what we need to do is not the great rallying cry, because that's not where we are. What we need to do is think about ourselves in our situation and ask ourselves, how can I be faithful How can I make a stand for Jesus in my workplace, in my family? Who can I write to in the government to encourage, to lobby? What could I do? Something small. And all the little people doing little things to make a stand for Jesus is what will make a difference in this country. But what's happening is increasingly, people like you and me, we're just staying quiet and we're lying down because it's getting harder and harder and harder. And if we all do that, what happens to the red dot? It just becomes like a gray dot. And then Jesus Christ has nothing to say to our broken world. So I want to encourage us. Every new generation needs young people who will stand up and make a stand for Jesus. And I want us to encourage one another that as a church, we will always be a church that will do that. That we will speak up and make a stand for Christ because he has spoken up and first made a stand for us. Nebuchadnezzar taunts, who can save, which God can save them from the fiery furnace? But at the end of our reading, we we get a different declaration. There is only one God who can save. And friends, he is the God that we serve. Amen.